Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. So today we have Suhag Shukla from the Hindu American Foundation with us, and we are going to talk about, arguably, if I was to say this, the greatest conference ever in the history of the human race. I mean, the kind of entertainment we got on Twitter. I have to say, Suhag. Aren't you grateful to them? The kind of entertainment we did not know the nation state was a phallus before the dismantling global Hindutva conference came up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We learned a lot of good academic wisdom um, as a result of this conference. So you know, Suhag, let's start with this. Uh, obviously, a lot of water has flown under the bridge now, but let's—I uh, don't know how to say this. Let's divide it into two parts. One is pre-conference and one is post-conference. So if I was to tell you, how how did you feel, not just as an individual Hindu, that, that's different, but as a community, as a diaspora. So how, where does the diaspora stand? Where were they standing before the conference? And where are they standing? How do they feel, if you were to say? Because obviously, you know, the HAF gets a lot of letters, a lot of communication is done to to Hindu American Foundation. So what is the sense amongst the diaspora before and after the conference? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we've been in this space for 18 years in terms of advocating for the community and keeping our eyes on issues that impact the community. And that can range from how Hinduism in India are presented in public school textbooks from K through 12 education, as well as higher education, as well as the media, as well as policy spaces. So that kind of spans the full spectrum where there are uh, narratives uh, that are being shaped, um, where there are narratives that are entrenched uh, in the way that we are seen as a people and um, the way in which then policies are, are created that impact us as a people, whether that's in India or whether that's in the global diaspora. So, you know, a lot of this has been ongoing in terms of the rot in academia. Um, and it's an, it's an isolated rot, uh, but it's a vocal rot and rots as we know can spread. So I, I just want to keep that perspective, um, you know, for, for your audience listeners. So this is something that we've um, been very familiar with. We attend what's called the American Academy of Religions. It is the largest gathering of scholars um, studying religion, supposedly in an academic manner. Um, and this can range um, from religion departments to kind of area or ge geography specific areas, um, sometimes the humanities. Um, and so it draws academics from a variety of the liberal arts and humanities. And so we've seen this sort of um, veiled um, Hindu phobia uh, pass off as scholarship. But those have usually been in the confines of these conferences, um, which are kind of elite institutions that um, are having these kind of echo chamber like conversations. Now, of course, there can be bleed in that when scholars are then invited as expert witnesses to testify at U.S. congressional hearings, which we've also seen happen. Uh, even though these are things that we have highlighted um, to and brought up to, you know, different communities across the United States, this conference and the way it kind of was like a just a spark, <laughs> um, the way it lit up 
the community in a way that I've never seen before is, is unprecedented. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. One, either we have children who are college students or going to be going to college, or we ourselves have been, you know, students. We could have been alumni from any one of these institutions or, um, or we just know the importance of some of the names, the heavy hitting names that were listed initially as uh, falsely listed as sponsors. And then the second thing I think is that we come from a wisdom tradition. Knowledge is, yeah. is the root of, of our tradition. Um, it is something that we have um, deified with Saraswati. I mean, you start your education doing Saraswati Puja, right? Even Ganesh yeah. Puja, it's all about wisdom. So yeah. for this medium, academia or education broadly, to be used to um, to forward a particular political ideology or to foment hatred towards a community, I think was just something that um, people couldn't couldn't handle, and that's where that's where we saw this kind of you know um, unprecedented activation of the community. And for that, I'm thankful to the organizers of uh, dismantling global Hindutva. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, there was a sense of, uh, I don't know what word should I use, um, camaraderie amongst the, the, amongst the community, not just, uh, I'm not talking about it at the level of the diaspora. I think, uh, I have to say, you know, if you are a BJP activist, you have to thank this conference from the bottom of your heart because this is going to help BJP politically so beautifully in India. They'll be like, oh, they think Hinduism should be destroyed. We will vote for this party. <laughs> so mm -hmm. BJP was like, please highlight this conference even when not needed. <laughs> so so it, it's obvious in that sense. But, you know, let's now let's let's get beyond what happens or could not happen but what is at the root of this right because some of the comments that i was reading there like there was this video clip i think even you had uh, co-tweeted it where i mean these people i don't know some of them are teachers or scholars or scholars in courts um you know saying things like hindutva is hinduism uh, we should not uh, you know try to distinguish between the two so if we want to dismantle Hindutva, we should basically dismantle Hinduism. And my, my natural follow-up question and, as an innocent bystander to anybody who says something like this is that how do you dismantle Hinduism without the annihilation of Hindus? Because at the end of the day, a meme is just what, I mean, you need a carrier of the meme, right? The meme is only as good as the carrier. So what? You're going to burn all the books because that's what happened when the when a certain invasion in India happened. When you know when the Ghaznavids and the Guryaids came in, you know they burnt a lot of libraries. History is uh, uh, evidence of that. So are we going to do something like that? Because you know book burnings are in fashion these days. I mean, recently, uh, as old as two years ago, there was something in Toronto where they're like, we're we're doing a purification ritual by burning books. So I guess it's in vogue nowadays in the West. I don't know. But uh, and the second question is, what are we going to send Hindus to gas chambers now? Because if we want to eliminate Hinduism, there's no other way, right? If Hindus are alive, Hinduism is alive. So what are you going to do about it? So what do you think is the root of this? That's my question to you. So a couple what of the root of this hatred. 
Yeah, a couple of things here. First, just in terms of, as you said, you know, you can split this conversation in before and after. So I want to touch upon, um, and I'm going to answer, try to remember to answer your question in two parts. So first is, you know, prior to uh, the conference, with just all the promotional um, materials that were coming out, including the false advertising um, that had that display of, you know, 40 plus logos that came down as a result of, um, not just HAF's efforts, but a number of community efforts that were writing letters. Writing letters is not issuing threats. Uh, that's what you do in a liberal democracy, that you you take your voice as an individual and you make it heard. So, um, you know, many of these institutions receive federal funding. And so therefore, we as Americans have every right to speak up if we feel that there's being a misuse of our taxpayer dollars, that um, that allow these universities to function. So, uh, you know, there was a letter writing campaign that resulted in millions of correspondences going out. Um, you know, I know uh, from our system alone, um, we had 938 um, emails that went out to the, you know, different administrators of the 40 universities and other groups have had their numbers. So we're talking about a lot of emails, probably enough emails to make some servers crash. Um, you know, and then we certainly, after realizing that we were, um, that our system was overwhelmed, we switched to a petition. But before, before this event went on, they went to great lengths. They had like two or three articles. Hindutva is not Hinduism. This is really just talking about dismantling, which in and of itself, is that really an academic exercise? You can do deconstruction, you can do other things, but dismantling is very clearly to me a political activity. But they said, this mm -hmm. is about Hindutva, it's not about Hinduism. Fast forward to by Sunday, I don't know how many times uh -huh. we heard that absolutely anyone who says that Hindutva is something that's different than Hinduism is essentially smoking crack or is, you know, is high. Um, I mean, that's kind of the takeaway. We also got another equation of Hindutva equals Hinduism equals caste and all sorts of equal signs um, that were, were being uh, tossed about. So uh, for any of the institutions that said this is an academic exercise, I think every administrator needs to watch all uh, however many hours would it be, like 18 to 20 hours of footage to see um, exactly how, quote unquote, academic um, this uh, this event remains. So that's kind of just in terms of, of, of that equation. Now, in terms of what is at root, um, I think there's it's a reflection of some of the paradigms through which India and Hinduism have been studied or presented or portrayed over the past several centuries. Um, there's racist constructs, there's colonial constructs, and there's Marxist constructs. And I don't think that any one of them really improve our understanding of what the tradition means in the lives of ordinary Hindus. And to me, that should be the fundamental question um, that religious studies should be answering. I don't think that it answers what the history of India is, uh, because there's a latent bias. But what's happened over time is that these structures have been elevated to a point of being considered the only objective manner in which, and it, as if it's inherently objective 
to study through these paradigms. And that's a falsehood. Um, they too have their bias, but um, no one admits to it. So a lot of the understanding of India uh, and the culture um, being the result of some light-skinned tribes coming in, all of that stuff is kind of related to this. From a Marxist perspective, uh, this idea that there's always going to be a group that's a perpetual oppressor, and there's always going to be a group that's perpetually oppressed, uh, that in the force fitting of that a paradigm on, on Indians makes Hindus the default oppressor. And um, where that gets really into kind of the arena of Looney Tunes is when you apply it to the diaspora. You know, Hindus and, and well, people of Indian origin make up less than 1.3% of the entire U.S. population. Hindus are a subset of that. So to cast us as some sort of oppressors when we are a ethnic as well as religious minority in throughout the diaspora and where there are documented cases of things ranging from serious human rights atrocities, genocides and ethnic um, religious cleansing all the way to discrimination. Um, that's a broad range, but it's, it's, a, it's a range that is rooted in documented cases of, of persecution and of marginalization and of discrimination and bigotry. Yeah, so, so you know what, on this thing about Hinduism and Hindutva, I think it's very important here to um, quote Savarkar. Um, so I'll read Savarkar's direct quote where he says, let Hinduism concern itself with the salvation of life after death, the concept of God and the universe. Let individuals be free to form opinions about the trial. The whole universe from one end to the other is the real book of religion. But so far as the materialistic and secular aspect is concerned, the Hindus are a nation bound by a common culture, a common history, a common language, and a common country. So obviously, Savarkar clearly differentiated between Hindutva and Hinduism. But what did Savarkar know? The only thing he did was write a book on Hindutva, lived in a Hindu la country, lived a Hindu life. What would he know? You know, a bunch of white folks living in the United States of America would know Hinduism better than Savarkar would, obviously. So how, how dare you question those people? How dare you? Well, that's, I mean, and that's, look, we, we also said from the beginning, you know, the event organizers and some of the scholar activists that are associated with this, um, with the event, were claiming that we were seeking to cancel the event. And that's that's not what we do. That's actually what they do. They are the ones who cancel people and cancel events and cancel speakers and censor those ideas that don't um, fit into their orthodoxies. So what we asked for was one, that the universities distance themselves from a political event, because that's what it was. Anything that's seeking to dismantle and specifically a political party is by its nature a political exercise. And they're free to have their political rally, political conference, whatever they wanna do, that's fine. Don't drag university reputations in, don't jeopardize their tax exempt status, and do not, uh, the other kind of danger of politicization of the academy is the fact that instead of, even though it's being done under the guise of academic freedom, it actually denies academic freedom because it, creates this 
orthodoxy, especially because they're so vocal and vitriolic in terms of labeling any viewpoint that disagrees with their viewpoint as Nazi, as fascist, as supremacist, as extremist, et cetera, et cetera. How is anyone who has perhaps an alternative theory to theirs supposed to speak up and take on the risk of being labeled? And I know that they label other scholars as soft Hindutva, whether they're doing it in their private listservs or they're doing it on social media, they are absolutely doing it. And it's very unbecoming of people who are educators who should be being role models to the next generation. So um, that in and of itself is, is problematic. But the second thing is that um, the other thing we had asked for is that universities, if their name is not even their name, but if faculty on their campuses are participating in this, let's be sure that Hindu faculty and students who might feel that they are now or might fear harm or fear hostility as a result of this sort of not just partisan event, but one that went ahead and promoted Hindu phobia and anti-Hindu sentiment, that those students and faculty are going to be supported. So those are kind of our two asks that I think that record needs to be cleared because the event organizers have been putting um, basically false lies about what was being asked. But the, the second point is that it is a legitimate academic exercise to ask what is Hindutva. And if that's what they were going to do, fine, do it. If it's an academic exercise, then you better invite a diversity of perspectives. So this whole idea, first of all, there's their definition. Then there's the, the historical definition. But there's been a whole lot of decades in between. You know, words and ideologies evolve. What, does it, what did it mean at the time that the word even came about in, in public discourse, right? Um, during pre-independence. What did it mean shortly after independence? What did it mean in the 80s? What does it mean today? All of those things I think are legitimate questions that we should explore. And there should be a diversity of, of voices that come in, including people who say that they espouse Hindutva. What does it mean to them? That all I think would provide the world a better understanding of, of this, you know, this thing that has multiple meanings for uh, across time for different people. But that's not what's happening here. There's a singular definition and one that a whole lot of people would disagree with being kind of elevated as the singular definition. And then the word is being weaponized um, against ordinary Hindu Americans. And that's a problem. Yeah, so I remember them tweeting things like, there is no Hindutva without Hinduism, separating Hindutva and Hinduism just distances us from the hard work of confronting that Hindutva is homegrown. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they're just bonkers. But then, so oh, here's my... Uh, hold on, let me read another one. Um, where did it go? Where basically, oh yeah. A person's identification with Hinduism can easily become an entryway into participation in Hindutva. And then after that, she says that these forms of hateful religion are iterations of the tradition. <laughs> I mean, um, so basically, to be Hindu is to be Hindutva. And they want to dismantle that. I mean, 
Hey, hey, as far as I'm concerned, let me be let me be categorical and put it on the record. If being Hindu, Hindu is being Hindutva for me personally, I'm not speaking for you, Swag. I'm only speaking for myself. I'm for I'm fine. I'm Hindutva, and you know this is like a, my good friend Harsh Madhusudan Gupta, you know, who's written this beautiful book, A New Idea of India. You know, Harsh and I always talk about it, and Harsh has always told me, you know, they say that word is a problem. I own it. Mm -hmm. my word now you know i'm going to own it and in fact Har harsh went to the extent and said you know this is like my n word now you know what you want to use this as a slur i am hindutva now do what you want to do you want to annihilate me let's see so yeah. so that's a problem but i have a genuine question here suhag because mm -hmm. and i think this is a fair question now haf has always because i know haf has written papers in support of the first amendment in america but then how do you reconcile this with allegations that have been thrown at the HAF of demanding cancellation of this event? Uh, now, so hear me out here. Yeah. Now, I get it that there is no exchange inside that little cocoon that is created by Audrey, where anybody who questions Audrey, uh, you know, Lady Teja, as I love to call her, she always says that, you know, I'm the academic. You cannot question me. Are you an academic? Look, I can read Sanskrit. And then when she's invited by other Sanskrit speaking scholars who actually live, breathe, eat, drink, sleep Sanskrit, she doesn't debate them. But that's a separate issue. But doesn't she have a right? And doesn't the conference have a right to hug? So don't you think calling for that cancellation is a, in a way hypocritical or am I wrong? Yeah, no, I mean, again, we never asked for it to be canceled. We never even asked for universities to tell their faculty they couldn't attend. Um, and in fact, I've been on the record multiple times and I know people get annoyed and they say, how can you say something like this? But in the United States, hate speech is protected speech. Now, false speech yeah. is not. Uh, so def defamation is not protected speech. So I think that... Uh, this has actually, this whole issue has also brought to fore, and I know that you've talked to people like Sachin Nanda about this, but the mm -hmm. Hindu diaspora experience of being Hindu is very different from, I agree. from the experience of being Hindu in India. And even the experience in being uh, Hindu in India is not a monolith. You know, what it is to be Absolutely. a Hindu in Gujarat is going to be very different than what it's like to be a Hindu in, uh, in Bengal versus Kashmir versus, you know, uh, uh, Kerala, they're very different experiences. And so, you know, the, the sloppiness with which kind of this, you know, on the one hand, they're saying, oh, we're trying to protect the diversity of Hinduism and Hindutva tries to make a monolith. Well, they're the ones who are making a monolith. Um, and mm -hmm. so had the, the solution to hate speech is actually more speech. The solution yeah. to hate speech is actually encouraging our young people to learn how to go through a diversity of perspectives, be in that place of discomfort, sit with people that you vehemently disagree with. I mean, some of the most um, some of the most memorable conversations that I had during college were with evangelical Christians who were telling me I was damned to hell, even though I didn't. Oh, yeah. Even though I didn't smoke, I didn't drink at that time, you know, I didn't, you know, cavort around with different people and I lived an ethical life. Um, I was told I was going to be damned to hell. 
And so I mm -hmm. would sit with them. And the irony was we were eating the free lunches that um, the Hare Krishnas served on our college campus. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you're kind of eating heathen food, just telling you. Um, that's sprinkled with some paganism. But, you know, so these those are the conversations that that I think really um, taught me, one, how to respond and not react, but two, to even hone in on what I truly believe. Because when someone challenges you, and if there are things that they make valid points about where there's maybe an inherent fallacy or a logical flaw, then that's a part of human evolution. That's how we evolve as people. And, and I think I'm a better person for those engagements, um, even politically. I constantly engage with people. It's getting more, it's getting increasingly difficult to do that, but that is at the heart of a liberal education. And that's what these scholar activists are preventing from happening. So yeah, we know that in the academy, there this idea of a cancel culture has has kind of emerged as, as a challenge. And we are actually opposed to that sort of uh, way of engagement. We don't think it's constructive, nor is it critical, nor does it align with our values in the Hindu tradition of vichar, of vivek, of, of, of thinking, of discerning, and of vairagya, of, of approaching things in an objective and detached manner and not getting so emotionally invested, especially in ideas. Mm. So now let's let's go, you know, to this topic because obviously this was an academic conference, academic in quotes. In case you're listening, I was using a quotation sign here when I said academic. Mm. Uh, we've always spoken about this. So I've shared my personal experience as a 20-year-old in Canada who did not know much. I went there, and you know, I went once to the library and obviously yeah, that was the first time in my life also somebody told me i'm going to hell in the university and how i should you know embrace jesus and i did not understand it to be very honest i was like why because my hindu worldview was completely different from theirs right my worldview was like oh i thought jesus was also one another god or something right so i found it very alien and then i started reading and i wanted to know my own culture it's like why are they like this and then when I went into the library and tried to read books on Hinduism, lo and behold, I did not find a single book by an Indian. And every time I would find an Indian, that would be the token Marxist Indian. That's when I realized that, you know, as they say in an American way, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> uh, I started, you know, I started digging a little bit more, a little bit more. But then my question to you, Suhag, you know, as somebody who's raised in America, who has children, is this something unique to Hindu studies? So um, yes and no. I, I think that you know some of those frameworks that I mentioned earlier, right? Those paradigms, whether it's uh, rooted in in colonial racism and kind of the colonial project and needing to present not just India but other civilizations that were colonized as somehow backwards, somehow retrograde, somehow in need of colonization, right? Those are, um, those are paradigms that not just affect how 
India's story is told, but also the stories of other places like the African subcontinent and all the countries there, large swaths of Latin America, Mexico, all of these countries are, um, are inheritors of these paradigms that continue to shape um, the narratives about, um, about their cultures, their traditions, et cetera. But I think that there is a larger issue of politicization in the academy. And I think it's very dangerous. And that's infecting the humanities as a whole, liberal arts as a whole, as well as um, we see it kind of trickling into, um, into medicine and, and, and the hard sciences. And that is, you know, there's, there's a number of, of academics here in the United States that are highlighting this, how certain orthodoxies, um, especially in the realm of race and gender, um, are stifling open inquiry, are stifling um, the ability for there to be a diversity of viewpoints on these very complex topics, uh, complex meaning as complex as the human condition because that's what they're trying to study. Um, and so I don't think it's what we're seeing happening in say South Asia studies or Hindu studies is I think a microcosm of, of, a, of a larger challenge um, that's um, affecting a variety of fields. Um, so no, Hinduism is not alone. But I do also wanna say that there are scholars who are approaching the study of Hinduism and India from a place of academic honesty and academic integrity. And very often they do face, if not overt censorship in terms of their ability to get published in, in some of the more, you know, quote unquote, prestigious um, journals or whether they get invited to the, um, you know, the, the more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the types of conferences and panels that are going to get more of the limelight. Um, that sort of stuff does happen. We also know that those types of academics who are committed to studying Hinduism from a place of trying to understand what it means, um, that they um, are oftentimes also um, labeled as quote unquote soft Hindutva or Hindutvavadis. If they show up on a community platform because they're invited as a guest speaker, they're labeled as such. And it, in, in the broader context, it's the equivalent of being called a racist. Um, and, and no one wants to be, um, have to defend against that label. And, and the problem with these labels is that once they stick, it's hard to kind of unring that bell. And so, yes, it is unique on some levels to Hindu studies and South Asian studies, but it's also in some sense um, a trend that, um, that has gotten the attention of a lot of academic scholars who are raising alarm bells. Yeah, it, it's the most insidious form of gatekeeping. Yes. Where, uh, where the person inside is simply, I think they're just, I don't know how to say it, but look, when it came to China studies, the Chinese have really gotten a hold over their own China studies. Mm, when it comes to Arabic studies or Islamic studies, the Muslims do have a say. I think a little bit of the blame does go to the Samaj also in our case. We really did not care. 
honestly, we did not care. And we were like, well, what are they going to do, right? And then look what has happened, you know, yeah. that small sapling that we ignored or that small weed in our backyard, they just, it just started to spread all around and look what kind of a pain in the ass has that become now. And, you know, this really cracked me up where they, there was another quote, like, unlike Christian fundamentalists, Hindu nationalists yeah. are not opposed to science. Rather, they strategically use the rhetoric from both science and Hinduism, modernity and orthodoxy, Western and Eastern thought, to build a powerful and dangerous vision of India as a Hindu nation. Yeah. How is that a problem? Well, and, and even the way they were just castigating Ayurveda off to the side. I mean, I don't think anyone has said that. Well, let me not go down that path. But Ayurveda, on the one hand, you have well-reputed medical institutions incorporating Ayurveda as complementary, not even alternative, but complementary uh, pathways to healing and well-being. And then you have these, what are they? They're part of the Feminist Critical Hindu Studies Collective. Um, and I think they call themselves intellectuals um, on, on social media. Um, you know, dismissing something that the scientific world is embracing. Uh, so in terms of, you know, on the one hand, they're saying they're post-colonial and they're trying to, um, dis they're disruptive, but then they are walking right into some of these um, paradigms through which even science is um, looked at and how they are accommodating Ayurveda, which is a very individualized way of treating people, right, as opposed to and there are still double blind studies and things like that to show efficacy of certain things where it's possible. So there's just such a, they, they live in this cloistered echo chamber, completely um, unaware of where the rest of the world is. That's one thing. Um, there was something else that you had um, mentioned and now I've lost my train of thought. Anyways, it'll, it'll come back to me, but um there's there's all sorts of gems. I mean, we haven't had time to we're slowly kind of it's one thing to watch it. And and at that point, you're you kind of are having to also deal with the, the shock of it all. <laughs> like, really, did they just say that um, to now being able to, like, kind of go back and, and listen um, in detail? Um, but they definitely handed us a whole lot of gems. Um, for us to kind of chew on. Oh, now I remember. In terms of chairs, I think that um, at least for the diaspora, um, our overall success and ability to not assimilate, but integrate um, has, has in some sense um, contributed to a complacency. Um, second thing is that we have a strong presence in STEM, in business, in entrepreneurship, slowly in law and policy, but not nearly to the critical mass that we've we've achieved in, in STEM and, and these other fields, medicine. Um, and so for a lot of people, I don't think they were familiar with how um, Hinduism in India are taught. If you came here as a graduate student, you're not going to be required to take humanities courses. But me, for instance, I actually have a degree in religion. So I did read Wendy Doniger and some of these other scholars um, during my undergraduate and realized what a disconnect there was between how they were presenting Hinduism 
and how I knew it to be and how I knew it to be in not just my own family, uh, but in broader communities and diverse communities. So um, that's that's one thing is also just complacency, unfamiliarity with what's going on, because you may not even take a course. And then the third piece is the chairs. Um, I think that, um, you know, there has been money from Indians that has been invested and being on kind of the back end of some of these negotiations, it's very hard to um, kind of, you can shape something up until the point the check's deposited until they're willing to play ball with you. So long as you still have the money in your hand, once they get it, it's a runaway train. And I think we've seen that, um, that, you know, many of the professors who were participating in this come from named chairs from successful Indians and, and people who are Hindu. So, um, so there is a problem there. I think there's an opportunity. I don't think we need to shy away from establishing chairs, uh, but I think that there's probably some lessons to be learned from other communities. Um, another piece I want to bring up, specifically the Jewish community that has been very successful in setting up mm -hmm. chairs, having conversations with them to see how do you ensure that the vision with which and the intent with which you're, you're giving your hard-earned dollars then continues through the administration of that. Um, the, the second point um, that you raised, um, or the second point that came to me in what you've raised in terms of just funding um, in the academy. One is chairs. The second thing is we cannot underestimate the influence of foreign funding. Um, we know for a fact that um, you know, like the Bridge Initiative, for instance, that's housed under Georgetown is funded by um, Saudi and, and Qatari um, individuals or, or coming from money from these two countries. And, you know, they have um, this bridge initiative is, is um, supposedly dedicated to um, studying Islamophobia, uh, but they have a fact sheet on RSS and they implicate a whole bunch of Hindu American organizations based on a number of false allegations. So there's there's that piece of it as well. And then the third piece in terms of university funding and, and campuses is our um, absence in the humanities. And that will take a sacrifice. Uh, you know, ac academia does not necessarily pay very well. And, uh, and, you know, most Indian families want to see that their kids are going into fields, one, uh, that will provide them enough to live a comfortable life, but second, where they're going to have job satisfaction. And, and if I were, a, you know, I am a parent today, if my son said, I want to go into religious studies or I want to go into South Asian studies, and I know that he's rooted in the tradition, I know he's confident about his identity, but I would also worry that he's walking into a space where um, academic freedom really isn't a reality for all perspectives. And I think that those are the types of things that way in at least the minds of parents and for students, um, they may not know what they're walking into. So I think there's multiple challenges in terms of our, um, our lack of presence in these spaces. 
let, let's let's focus a little bit more on this bit because this is the one that concerns me the most because whether look i might be living in india but we all have family like you have family in india i have family in america and canada i'm really worried about this i'm really worried that a young hindu kid is born there his parents are born there or her parents are born there or whatever gender they are their grandparents came in the united states or america or canada they go into a classroom right like you said and they're told that their religion is garbage they're told that they're basically pieces of shit i mean they're not going to be using pieces of shit as a word but that's how they're going to come out feeling Yeah. there was this twitter thread that i had read about obviously from an anonymous handle and and the kind of agony yeah. and the kind of mental trauma and and we should not this is not a microaggression this is somebody questioning your very existence yeah and for someone to say oh so what you know buckle up you know pull yourself by the bootstraps Oh, you don't even give me any bootstraps. What am I going to pull myself off? You're basically saying my entire existence is a sham. So, how do we, without typecasting everyone like that, Suhag, openly now come out and say that beyond a point, you know, the only good pagan is a dead pagan, and that's just the way this thing is playing out. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a serious problem, uh, and you know that. hypothetical that you provided in terms of grandparents came from india parents are born here children are born here that's me <laughs> my yeah i know that's why i used the example yeah. <laughs> i mean my parents came here in the 1960s um from gujarat i was born in california my children were born here so they're effectively third generation and it's hard because you know that it, it's not just you know so you you have these college is supposed to be that time where you can explore who you are um at at arm's length or, or maybe a little bit even further from your parents you know parents have invested so much time energy and love into handing over teachings ethical values a tradition that they feel is going to help their children lead a happy and balanced life right i mean that that's at least for me that's what the tradition and the practices represent is a way in which i can um kind of remember that true happiness is within and how can i deal with the ups and downs of life in a way that in a in a balanced manner in in maintaining equanimity that's that's the whole of the tradition in terms of what it brings to me um and and how i can be a good person uh living in the service of others. I want to take that and make sure that the sacrifices that my parents made coming all the way to this country uh because of whatever lack of opportunity that they might have had there um came here built a lives a life for us and now I want to make sure that we don't lose that simply because of a decision that they made. um at a time that was difficult for them my you know my mother's side of the family was not at all wealthy um my father lost his father at the age of 8 so just a a real life of struggle and and this was this was an avenue for them that was presented so 
you know, and this is not, my story is not unique. It's the story of many, many people. And then yeah. you, you have these university professors who are essentially demonizing not just ideas. They're actually demonizing individuals. And there's a, there's a big Absolutely. difference. Communities. Um, right? Yeah. They are demonizing communities wholesale. And we need only look back to the past hundred years to see what happens when individuals or communities are demonized from the intellectual sphere, from the policy sphere. And it's, it's devastating. It is, um, you know, you end up with holocausts and with genocides and with ethnic religious cleansings. And I don't want, you know, some people will say, oh, that's hyperbole. Yes. You know, is one conference going to do that? Is 250 years of biased uh, teaching of Hinduism going to change that? Uh, no. But now these intellectuals, so-called intellectuals, are armed with the power of social media in the way that any other hateful ideology. I mean, some of the things that they were saying of equating Hindu supremacy with white supremacy, I mean, that is so deeply false, one, because one actually doesn't even accept the other, <laughs> but it's so dangerous um, to kind of portray ordinary Hindus who are just going about living their lives in communities, oftentimes in communities where they are really, really, I mean, you can look at the nation and say, okay, you're a micro minority, but the experience of a Hindu in say Edison, New Jersey is going to be very different than someone who's in small town, Alabama. So when you start there, there's so many layers um, to who might face, um, face the, the price that from from their rhetoric and for what is supposed to be their aim, which is a political party in India. If that's your aim, well, fight it in the right field. Go to India, put out your mm. placards, go and protest if you want. You're welcome to do that, but you don't need to mm -hmm. drag those politics to Western shores. Yeah, I agree with you. I think sometimes I don't get it, but I mean, uh... I think it's very, you know, it's a very legitimate concern if you're a Hindu parent in America where uh, primarily the, uh, you know, the concern always was that whether you like it or not, initially the concern used to be, well, you know, we are in a country where the larger religion actually believes we're all going to hell at a theological level, although I'm not saying that the, all yeah. the people believe that, so I don't want to be misquoted here, but at least at a theological level, you're in a country that says you're going to hell. Now, you get over that and, you know, you go into the academic world where I thought, you know, secular academics would not be doing that. And I don't know, it's as if, you know, even secular academia is anti-pagan now and you don't know where to go. So, so yeah, I just real quick on that. I think what makes this um, situation all the more difficult is um, what's called horizontal hostility. It's coming from within the community, right? Mm -hmm. Look at, they were all academics or activist scholars 
who are of Indian origin. Not all of them. The vast majority were, though. And yeah, so, self-hating one. Yeah. And, and so what happens is that where um, other communities have actually benefited from, say, allyship with other communities who say, hey, I get it. I'm going to join you in your fight against this. It makes it all the more difficult, I think, for Hindus. And, and I think the Jewish community, in some sense, has similar challenges. And boy, is there an overlap between the activist scholars who are engaged in this activity. And I can, I can bet if you ran some algorithm that cross-checked names, a lot of those names are going to be on, on the petition letters for BDS and in, in universities and institutions and departments seeking to boycott, divest, um, and, and sanction Israel. Now, that's not to say that there's not space to criticize state policies. That, to me, again, is a legitimate academic exercise. But that's not what this was. I mean, there might have been touches of it where they were talking about um, economic policy or the or the um, response to COVID. But again, if it's an academic conference, then you would have had a multitude of perspectives. You would have had economists at the table. You would have had um, people who study policy or, or political science and, and a variety of other things. But that's that's who was missing from this. Yeah, but Suhag, it's never about academic conferences. This is not an academic conference. It wasn't. This is an agenda building. Yeah. See, I mean, just look at the piece today in the New York Times or whatever. I, I saw a piece. Abhijit wrote a beautiful thread dissecting the piece. It's just full of lies. Or look at the coverage on the deaths in India. So, you know, luckily we are Hindus and, you know, most of us believe in reincarnation and being born again. So I was joking about it with my friends. You know, it started with the deaths being 3x, then 6x, then 10x. It has gone up to 30x now. And I was like, it's it's perfectly natural. After all, you know, Suhag, we're Hindus. We're born again. And this time it's a miracle. We're born again in the same body again. So, you know, we keep <laughs> dying in India and we're born in the same body again. It's also, it's, this is the best system we have in India. Everybody is dying of COVID, getting born again in the same body. And, you know, this is no longer, I think, look, I, I don't know, as a sociopolitical animal, I'd never hide it. It's all about turf wars, Suhag. It's, it's yeah. hatred of Hinduism and Hindutva is just an excuse. These people are, you know, a dying breed. They are the dinosaurs from India's past. They had control over many positions in India, even when they used to sit outside India. With the dawn of a new political reality in India, with the dawn of a new political engineering in India, these people know they're going to be irrelevant. And let's be very clear. And I know it's it's very sad that the diaspora is suffering. And I know why the diaspora is suffering. The diaspora is suffering because of the changing political narrative in India. And it's not the fault of Indians in India. They just choose a political party. And the poor diaspora outside India is like, what did we do? We don't even go and vote there. <laughs> and you're, you're exactly. making us suffer because of this. And I know it, it's, it's sad. It's sad. And I get it. But I have to, you know, I have to ask you a couple more questions and then we can get into the live viewers questions. But, you know, we can't be negative all the time. So do you see any silver lining here? Um, absolutely. Um, there's a silver lining. I think that this has um, awakened the community like nothing else has. I mean, looking back at the New York Times and, and I think maybe there was a slow trickle up to this point. Um, COVID coverage being one of them. I mean, I remember 
when, um, you know, some of the early headlines on what was being seen as kind of a success in terms of dealing with COVID in India and, and yeah. some of the, um, you know, overtures that the government was making to other countries who were in, in worse situations. There was almost like a sense of shock <laughs> that was underlying the coverage and like, well, why aren't more people dying in India? <laughs> like, you know, exactly. So let me, let me state it blatantly. And I've said it many times on Twitter. How dare you brown people stay alive while we're Right. Dying. And, you know, so it was like almost like a disappointment that more people had. Yeah. Died. And, and that to me was you know, deeply offensive and problematic, um, especially because my in-laws were in India at the time. They split their time between here and and um, Ahmedabad. But I'm like, are you wishing death upon all of our relatives and friends? Like, that's kind of like the undercurrent that was, was coming. So, you know, there was that. Even prior to COVID, um, when you saw the abrogation of Article 370 and the coverage of that, you know, we have on our website, HinduAmerican.org, a preliminary um, survey we did of top uh, Western media outlets. So CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, um, uh, BBC, a couple of others. And I believe, and I, I might be misquoting the numbers, but in the first month, so from August to September, not a single one of those articles mentioned the ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Pandits. Not a single one mentioned that Kashmiri Pandits, 350,000 to 400,000 had been cleansed from their indigenous ancestral homeland. Um, and this is from periodicals, from media houses, that if you go back into their archives to 1989, 1990, they actually were at least some of them, the world largely ignored it. So did India, quite honestly. But um, even back then, there was acknowledgement of the fact that Hindus were being targeted. So it's not like they didn't know. Um, it's in their archives um, that they, they chose to ignore it. So I think there have been a couple of things that have slowly built up to, hey, we know that this is not right. And then you have this uh, this event. And as I brought up, you know, the association uh, with education that we have both from a perspective of having gone to college, going to college, or eventually having someone in our families go to college, as well as education being so important to our tradition. That is the silver lining to me that people have woken up to something that we've been um, tackling for 18 years. I mean, we decided to create an entire advocacy organization, hire staff to focus on these issues on a full-time basis. And so to know that now when I go to a party, people are actually coming up to me and asking me, hey, I heard about this issue, as opposed to people actually taking a step back from me and saying, oh, you're into that Hindu Hindu thing um, without even understanding what we do, I think is um, is probably the unintended consequence um, and certainly not the end goal that these um, activist scholars had in mind. All right. Then then the natural question then would be what next, Suhak? How, how do we now 
whatever has happened has happened you yeah. know the water has flown under the bridge we know we have just been you know highly entertained by the organizers of the dismantle global hindutva conference but look we learned our lessons now what next how do we build from here so i i think there's um a Uh, and this is by no means a comprehensive list. Um I know we're working on on a couple of things that I'm not at liberty to share right now, but this issue is not over for us. It it didn't begin with the event and it's not going to end with the event. So that's one thing. Um if if there are people in the United States, um especially parents, I think parents really need to start spending time with their children and I don't actually don't even think this is because we need to teach our children I think we as adults actually need to learn our own history right when we've been focused in the sciences when we've been focused in uh medicine or entrepreneurship we're not necessarily aware of what our history is and I would say that in the last 10 to 15 years there's been a growing amount of uh scholarship as well as um lay reader oriented books um on our history that i think parents and children should spend time together reading for those that are in the US um we're encouraging people to take we have two programs our dharma ambassadors program as well as our dharma advocates program both of those are capacity building programs where we are providing um people in the community the um uh, not just the content but the communication skills um with which they can communicate better with their peers with city councils um with um with their colleagues because these are all the different fronts in which we're seeing kind of deliberate attacks to demonize hindus and people of indian origin on how they can talk about our tradition how they can talk about the issues that are important to us and how we see hindu ethics and values as solutions possible solutions to these challenges so that's that's another way in which um people can tackle this issue because i think that there is a lot of sense of helplessness in the community i think more people need to consider going in eyes wide open but consider pursuing um these fields do your research figure out which universities are open to viewpoint diversity figure out which universities are going to be um supportive of of you uh as a hindu student and pursue it you know we need more people india needs to invest in the humanities and liberal arts and sciences um so that um we have i don't think you necessarily have to be indian or hindu to be able to study um these topics i just think that you need to be committed to academic integrity and academic honesty so those are kind of just some very high level quick ways in which um i think uh is is a way forward for um for for all of us yeah i guess look even if we wanted uh, beyond a point you can never tell people you can't study my religion people are going to study what they want to study what i think uh you know this where i think not just outside india i think this is the mistake the hindus made in india too was they they had always looked down upon social sciences mm-hmm. i myself looked down upon social sciences but i read them all the time because i always like to read things i look down upon so that i can tell people this is why i look down upon them because they are batshit crazy that's the whole point but we strategically correct decision 60s 70s 80s 90s invest in you know 
shops and IT degrees, STEM fields, you know, take over 7-Elevens, take over gas stations. That, those were the right things we did as the community. But now I think there has to be a concerted effort from inside the community. This is my bit, I believe, yeah. not just outside India, in India too. Absolutely. We need to have financially stable Hindus because we are a financially stable community now, whether we like it or not, at least in, in, the, in the North American area, we are very financially stable. We need to start making investments in social sciences where we, we start writing papers and 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 it, it doesn't necessarily have to be written by people who are Hindu. It just has to be written by people who are academic and objective in their nature. They yeah. just want to know the truth about about uh, their society. And and I think baby steps are being taken there. I think uh, the reason I started the podcast was that I just wanted to know the truth. I don't care. It's a, I mean, people know me. I mean, I'm a very vehement critic of many things of Hinduism. And but at the end of the day. I also know where Hinduism is wrong and where Hinduism is right. And where Hinduism is right, these crazy people are not going to convince me because even I've read the text, damn it. It's not like they are the only ones. And this kind of, you know, this this ridiculous academic gatekeeping that that especially folks like, and I'll take names, I don't care, like whatever. Audrey, I mean, the kind of gatekeeping Audrey does, it, it's nauseating. Yeah. It, it is outright nauseating what she's doing. Now, she might be an academic. No, that does not mean I have no right to question you. And when anybody questions us, they're like, what are your credentials? Abhi I'm a PhD, karu tujhe question puchne ko. Ye kis kisam ka role hai? To fir tum bhai ye kaam karo, tum pehle Hindu bano, Hinduism ke upar likhne ko. Yeah. That's my answer to them, right? And, and also, you know, they, they make this big deal about how Hindutva denies agency to subaltern or to minorities, et cetera, et cetera. But they themselves are denying agency to Hindus. I mean, what we saw during the event, for instance, is a scholar kind of schooling a South African Hindu that, no, even if you say that, that your um, experience of Hinduism has transcended caste, uh, you know, that's not true. You're not acknowledging X, Y, Z or whatever. I mean, this man is talking about his experiences. His experiences are his experiences. You can't deny that. But that's what this scholar from her position of power and privilege is doing to a lay Hindu. So uh, I agree with you that you know, and social sciences are critical to even STEM. And I think we're seeing that more and more as, as and I'm not an expert in this at all, but as you know, technology um, functions on more and more algorithms that are trying to predict human behavior. Shouldn't we actually know what human behavior is all about? Like what have the, you know, macro uh, or meta level trends been in human evolution and societal evolution and devolution and everything in between? I mean, these are critical, um, critical topics that then can inform not just technology, but inform policy and um, inform even just our understanding of others at a very visceral day-to-day person-to-person level. Um, all of these things are important. All right, let's get started with the questions now, Suhaq. So I don't know this question. I, I think there is a uh, I think they've mistyped it. Does okay. HAF report on caste in USA or Hinduphobia in USA? What does the HAF do? 
Oh, what does the HAF do? So the HAF is Hindu American Foundation is an advocacy and education group. So we work on improving the understanding of Hindus and Hinduism, and we work on policies that impact not just Hindus, um, but uh, will kind of promote the well-being of all people on the planet. So what does that mean? Um, you know, the way in which uh, Hinduism in India are taught in K through 12 textbooks, uh, all the way up through the media, are largely the kinds of um, stereotypes that we saw being promoted in the guise of academic freedom um, this past weekend. Um, you know, the caste cow curry approach. So, providing educators, because here in the United States, the average public school teacher actually wants to empower their students. They want their students to be um, well-informed global citizens. Uh, and mm -hmm. the way in which these kind of tired colonial narratives that still continue to inform how Hinduism in India are taught, they understand are not going to um, get their students ready um, for being again, successful global citizens. So we have an entire Hinduism 101 program. We have teachers trainings in which we're working directly with educators who want to get things right. And, and our materials have been vetted by academic scholars um, and, and have been developed by someone who has a PhD in curriculum development. So that's kind of our education portfolio. On, the, on our policy side of things, some of the issues that we deal with are hate crimes prevention here in the United States, fair immigration reform. These are all issues that affect um, Hindu Americans and other, other communities. Um, we have a human rights portfolio that, um, that highlights and actually monitors and documents human rights atrocities against Hindu minorities in a variety of countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Fiji, Sri Lanka, Trinidad, Tobago, Guyana, some places where people may not even know that Hindus live and are actually facing institutionalized discrimination, Bhutan. So um, we uh, published one of the very first human rights reports and have consistently been um, monitoring and documenting human rights atrocities and then talking to members of the U.S. government to ensure that human rights remains a top priority alongside other national interests like security and trade. Um, we also talk with foreign governments. Um, we have have had conversations with the you know uh, representatives of the Malaysian government, of the Indian government, of the Bangladeshi government, and others um, to ensure that they too prioritize and are aware of the atrocities being committed against um, Hindu minorities. So that's kind of our human rights work. In terms of caste, yes, we've worked on caste. Caste is one of those stereotypes that um, is almost the central definition of, of Hinduism in textbooks. We're also seeing it kind of bleed into policy spaces where um, activists, um, mostly kind of neo-Ambedkar activists are trying to get caste added as a category. This happened in the UK as well, trying to get it added as a, as a protected class category in areas like um, corporations, uh, county policies, as well as college campus um, non-discrimination policies. Look, we firmly believe that no one should be discriminated on the basis of caste or any other, other basis. But in the United States, the way non-discrimination policies are set up, you have these broad protected class categories that uh, are 
are broad and neutral on their face. So they don't necessarily and inadvertently target any one group in, in the hopes of curbing discrimination. They don't end up resulting in discrimination. And when you have a category like caste, which no one necessarily agrees on the, discrimi- the, the definition, of course, in India, you have an administrative category, but who exactly fits in into that is also not necessarily um, well-defined. Well, when you add something that's vague in its definition, or there's no agreed upon definition, and you have a category that only is associated with a ethnic religious minority, you're going to end up actually singling out and targeting them in the names of trying to um, uh, kind of counter discrimination. More importantly, there are already these facially neutral and broad universal categories under present existing law in the United States that we believe would provide an avenue of justice for anyone who has faced discrimination on the basis of caste, and that is um, ethnic origin or ancestry. These two categories exist as protected classes and have been read broadly to include things like tribe that have been read broadly to understand background. And all of those things, I think you could arguably make the case if someone has faced caste-based discrimination, um, that it would it would be covered and there is an avenue for anyone who has suffered. So um, that's kind of our, um, our, our work in the realm of caste. We have filed what's called a third party motion. As many people in your audience have probably heard about the case in the state of California. Um, where they have filed um, a a case for discrimination against Cisco Systems, one of the largest tech companies um, that has a very significant number of workers of Indian origin. But what the state has done is they've defined caste as a Hindu social and religious hierarchy uh, in which basically discrimination is mandated. So uh, Number one, in the United States, because of our constitution and religious freedom that's guaranteed under the First Amendment, the state cannot define religious doctrine. And that's what they're doing there. So we are we have filed in the interest of Hindu Americans and our religious liberty rights. The second thing is equal protection. And I kind of talked about that, that when you create a category by law, it has to be facially neutral and broad in order to provide uh, protection to people without targeting any one group. So what that means is that a category like race, for instance, in the United States, you don't have necessarily one group that's always going to be considered a protected racial class and then another class that's not. So arguably someone who is a white American could be discriminated against and claim racial discrimination, say if they work in a company where it's all Asians and they are, say, being kept from um, promotions or are being treat- mistreated or are being given you know, subpar assignments or whatever the case may be. Uh, that's, that is, I think, the power of facially neutral laws so that anyone, it, it doesn't get into this like, perpetually oppressed, perpetually oppressor um, framework. What it says is that we are going to recognize that each and every individual is um, is deserving of dignity and mutual respect. And regardless of who is the bad actor, here is your avenue for justice. 
got it so so you know to say hinduism is all about caste is like saying islam is all about jihad uh, there i said it so if they're willing to say islam is all about jihad then okay be my guest so that that's my answer to that uh, you cannot define what my religion is when what my religious experience is that's just ridiculous if anybody does. so i guess what the person had asked was because they said in 2010 haf released a caste report we did, did any lawmaker or public figures accepted is that an updated version of that i guess this person regularly reads your report well thank you um that uh that report yes we did and it was not intended for the government it was really kind of our effort to uh participate in a conversation about caste that was occurring without hindus at the table and um and so now that report kind of lives on in different pieces i would say that our understanding of of the history of caste and and nomenclature has definitely evolved and so you can go to our website um www.hinduamerican.org uh, www.hinduamerican.org i'm sure everyone knows that i didn't have to say that but um can uh you know put in caste into the um search terms and you can read um some of the various materials that we have uh, approaching the topic from a historical view from a legal view from a view of what the impact of teaching kind of stereotyped versions of it in the classroom what impact that has on students and a variety of other um vantage points all right so somebody has asked how do we dismantle cultural appropriation in america like christian yoga so i just want to make a comment here why do we need to dismantle it yeah i mean if they want to do it let them do it we can do it in our own way yeah uh, if they claim it is christian the uh, the burden of proof is on them yeah i mean look the appropriation question um is an interesting one what i actually find most interesting is um the conversations that are actually happening in south asian spaces so these are kind of the same spaces that say these activist scholars would um socialize in or or find as their kind of um ideological home so i've had actually conversations with um second and third generation um hari krishnas right i i had a great conversation with someone who is um part african american part white and her parents both um you know converted or whatever the word would be they took the uh uh what's it called um diksha with iskon and then they had children they got married had children and the children have been raised in iskon so um they've been called out for appropriating when they're singing kirtan by these south asianists who probably don't even know the first thing or probably have maybe have a bhagavad gita somewhere in their parents home i don't want to judge but point being that they're calling out these people purely on the basis of what their outward identity is which is so against what our <sighs> tradition teaches us right our tradition teaches us that the body is temporary and i know that you might disagree with that just given yeah. your own philosophy but that's fine but i still uh, celebrate it yes thank you so uh but point being that that we are um as as um you know one swami that i love listening to her lectures as has said that you know we are spirits having a human experience as opposed to humans having a spiritual experience and so that whole notion of consciousness or whatever being the one eternal uh constant and everything else just being 
the material actually being immaterial, these, these, and it's usually young women are completely missing the point. And they're not respecting the experiences of these young people who grew up in Sampradays that have more of a, a global reach. So um, that's one thing on, on appropriation. But the second thing I'll bring up is, gosh, now it's probably been almost 10 years. I don't know if it's been 10 years, but um, we launched what we called our Take Back Yoga um, initiative. And that was uh, our effort to showcase the Hindu roots of yoga, because what we were seeing in the industry was this disassociation, almost treating treating Hinduism as an H word. And so um, it started with a letter to the editor, then a um, kind of a, a white paper on how actually disassociating the Hindu aspects of yoga with yoga and really fixating on just the asana was actually uh, disingenuous, but also shortchanging those people who are at least beginning to get some sort of inner transformation as they started even just practicing asana. Um, and so um, that kicked off a global conversation about the Hindu roots of yoga. Um, I have to thank Deepak Chopra <laughs> because when uh, when my better half and co-founder of AJF Asim Shukla wrote a piece, he had a column back then in the Washington Post. Um, they had started this on faith thing where they had different people from different um, religious per perspectives and persuasions writing pieces on different timely topics. So when Asim wrote about yoga, Deepak Chopra came out of nowhere and wrote a counter. And then that ended up with like a three or four essay back and forth. And then uh, a couple of others also responded to him on other platforms uh, like uh, the uh, Huffington Post and, and maybe one other. So um, I'd encourage people to, to take a look at that work. Um, it's uh, you just have to look up Take Back Yoga on, on our website. All right. So now let me ask a few questions so that we can answer more and more of them. This is more of a comment and question. So somebody has said, uh, any of you please advise. I think I'm aware enough and want to make other people aware of the importance of our Indian culture. How do I start to reach more and more people? Well, I'll, I guess I can answer this. Go on the HAF website if you're outside India. Uh, if you're in America, help them. If you're in UK, go and visit Vichar Manthan or, you know, find a local organization. It's not that hard, man. Just start talking. See, uh, this one thing I've noticed, Suhag, in our, you know, our, our community, uh, this, this uh, weird sort of guilt ingrained in the Hindu that, you know what, if you talk about your worldview or your spiritual worldview somehow, you know, the only people outside India that I used to see who are very open about talking about their worldview were the East Con fellas. Everybody else is always, you know, hi, hi, nahi baat karni, religion ghar mein rakho. I don't know why they do it. I mean, but this is what well, I've I, noticed. I, you, you, you see that here too. I would also tell that individual that, you know, study the tradition. That's what it's about. You know, if you're not um, reading uh, texts or studying texts or join join a reading group or start one, um, read the Gita, you know, read other texts, um, go to especially. And the thing is, like, I, I would say that, you know, I have read several texts, um, Gita and, and Upanishads, of course, I'm reading translations, but the depth with which you can the depth that you get when you sit with a guru. And I like to sit with gurus of all different um, philosophical bents. Uh, it will really help you deepen your understanding and give you then the confidence of one, not only just being 
a good human. And, um, but also in having these conversations, um, not just with people who agree with you, but with people who disagree with you. Yeah. Okay. Somebody has asked, I don't know, this is an interesting, peculiar question. How is the attitude of right-wing media houses like Fox towards Hindus and India? Uh, are they now going to be the future leverage to counter the absolutely abysmal coverage of India and Hindus, which has started in New York Times? Great question. Um, because I think you can broaden this uh, this topic to actually even just the political parties, right? Um, you have your Democrats and you have your Republicans. And um, I think that if you approach policies from, from, a, from a Hindu identity, and, and I'm not gonna try to define a Hindu identity, but I do think that at least for us and many of our constituents, which is thousands across the United States, um, we're in some sense political orphans. Um, and, and, or you can say that we are very well situated in the center of, of both, both parties. If you go to the fringes of either the left or right wing, um, there's not much space uh, for, for Hindus. Uh, on the left, you kind of have that Marxist ideology that you know, has basically driven this conference as well. Uh, but on the right, you have a, a very strong evangelical presence that views issues like religious freedom only through the lens of having kind of free license and open borders to, to you know, spread the good word, uh, casting aside any ethics. Look, if someone is inspired by, you know, has their own inspiration and wants to change religions from whatever to whatever, fine. But where you are throwing the might of billions of dollars and you are connecting conversion or, or conditioning humanitarian aid or education or, or medical assistance on conversion, I think uh, people of any civil society need to stop and ask ourselves, like, where does one person's religious right now start um, taking away the human rights of, of another person? All right. Somebody obviously has a lot of issues here with NRIs and diaspora in general. So <laughs> they've asked, why are Hindus abroad so incompetent in dealing with such a narrative? And why Hindus abroad take pride in regional Indian identities other than the larger Hindu identity? Well, I think one, that's a stereotype, but I would like to turn the question back to that individual. <laughs> like, I mean, um, you know, where where are all the, all these issues um, could have been resolved in India itself? Um, in terms of setting up institutions that study history, that encourage, and not just from one, one viewpoint. Uh, so um, I would just like to push back on that. <laughs> I mean, there's, re and, and I mean, and, and in terms of regional identities, it's not, let's, it's not just a matter of identity. It's a matter of culture. It's a matter of, it's just human nature. Um, I don't think uh, regional things should then, the minute regional identities or regional groups become a reason to not then engage with other people, 
then I don't think it's meeting its purpose. But where uh, regional ties are allowing people to preserve traditions. Like I'm a second generation Gujarati. I don't want to give up Garba. <laughs> like, I think Garba is awesome. I call myself a Garba queen. And if a regional or you know cultural organization is going to provide the platform where I can go and celebrate and I can um, you know learn about specific things, that's the beauty of India. Also, is there our diversity? So you know, as long as diversity doesn't divide, but diversity can be uh, you know contribute in a positive way but still we don't lose sight of our, our unity. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. All right. This is a lighthearted comment, but it is very funny. I have to ask. Uh -oh. <laughs> I've noticed American Indians carry over a new sort of caste identity or a class identity. They sometimes look down upon fobs. <laughs> On fobs? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny. Like, no, but uh, to be on a serious note, I think, you know, the one reality that is changing now, Suhag, is, and we've discussed this in the past, online and offline, yeah. is that a lot of Indians now from India are coming in. And this Indian is very different from the Indian that maybe migrated in the 60s and the 70s. And the, this Indian is very assertive. So I'll tell you what used to, this is my opinion, and people can dismiss it. But when I went in 2000, you know, I carried a very different kind of confidence. And when I went there and I would meet fellow Indians from India, they were not like this. But then I realized, oh, it's just me because I'm from Mumbai. And Mumbai had that arrogance about it because we were the city of India at that time. Now there are so many better places than Mumbai in India. But there is this confidence that an Indian that travels now from India, they carry it over there. And it is, I mean, I'm not saying it is some war between Indians from India and the Indians who are born and raised there. I mean, I'm married to one who's born and raised there. So there is definitely no yeah. issue there. But it, it is sometimes, doesn't it become a sort of a problem in the worldviews? Because the Indians from India maybe carry their Indian politics over there, which sometimes is unnecessary, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's um, like all things, there's no uh, one way of looking at it. So maybe in case there's people on the, in the audience that don't know, FOB or FOB is a fresh off the boat um, <laughs> in terms of um, maybe a not so nice way, or maybe it's a neutral term. I don't know. It depends on how you ask. Uh, but, um, but I'll tell you that, um, interestingly enough, uh, when I was an undergraduate and I would meet, so back then, I think now you see a lot more people um, coming from India for undergraduate studies, which I think is a sign of a rising middle class and, and a more affluent uh, India. But when I was in college in you know 1989 um, onwards, uh, most of the students who were coming from India were graduate students. So there wasn't, there was definitely a divide between graduates and undergraduates. And just as we might've had stereotypes about the FOBs, the FOBs had their stereotypes about the ABCDs, right? The American born confused Desi, which I always say is American born confident Desi. But anyways, so <laughs> there, were, there were kind of mutual um, stereotypes, but any type of stereotype, the best antidote to a stereotype is actually talking to one another. And yeah. When, uh, you know, these graduate students had their preformed ideas of what we were like and what 
We had our preformed ideas of what they were like. There were a couple of opportunities on campus where there were these events that were happening where we actually came together. And I remember this one graduate student, he's like, man, I'm really surprised at how cultured you are. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I should take that as a compliment or as, as, as a, you know, put down. But, but point being, and, and my comment would have been, well, you're a lot cooler than I thought, right? Like, so the, I think that that sort of engagement is helpful um, for anything, any sorts of differences <laughs> that we might um, hold um, for one another. So um, yes, there are, there are stereotypes. In terms of uh, the kind of today's Indian immigrant versus say my parents, in addition to India being a different um, in a different place economically um, today and having more cities that are uh, that have a rising middle class. I also think that when my parents came, they did not have um, confidence that comes with numbers. So, you know, they had no choice but to um, live in neighborhoods where there might not be mm -hmm. any other Indians. They had no choice but to turn to their Italian neighbors or their Polish neighbors or their German neighbors to learn how the system worked. Uh, versus today, uh, you can come with your batchmates from say Tata Consulting or from whatever college that you went to, you're gonna find alumni associations, um, you're gonna find um, you know, colleagues that you knew from before, you might also have family that's already been settled here. So it's just a very different experience. And so, um, and I mean, rewind to the 1960s, my dad used to have to kind of mail order his Indian groceries from this one Lebanese um, or Indian, I can't remember if it was Lebanese or, or Indian grocery store in Chicago. And they would write a letter for, you know, they wanted Jira of all things. <laughs> like you couldn't find Jira, you couldn't find Danya, you couldn't find any of that. And so you mail ordered it. Today, um, one of our kind of mainstream stores is Trader Joe's. And I can go and buy a frozen palak paneer and rice uh, lunch that's microwavable. So we're talking about a very um, different landscape um, that contributes to um, being able to be more confident. I get it. I, I think also we have to understand people change constantly. The problem with, uh, you know, ideologues is they think the world is tech, uh, stuck yes. in, in, a, in a state where it cannot change forever. That's the problem with an ideologue. Normal yeah. people, they just keep adjusting. They move forward. They move backwards. They, they adjust. They engage. And and that's how human beings are. But I guess it's always going to be. All right. So, Axel, so we've almost uh, now. We've yeah, let me just add just now. one other thing uh, that I want to talk about sure. is we can't underestimate the power of media. Right. And now yeah. social media and the things, you know, independent content like what you're creating. But, you know, 30 years ago, my parents would not have had access to programming that would give them an eye into American culture or or pop culture that makes it a little bit easier to integrate um, or to come in thinking like, hey, I know what I'm getting into. But, you know, series like Friends or Seinfeld, all these things have now become globalized. 
so that everyone kind of has a peek into at least one iteration of American culture. And I'm not saying that those shows are emblematic of what all of America is. All of America is very different and very diverse. But that also, I think, um, gives uh, people a pathway to feeling more comfortable even before they get here. I'll give you a classic example of that. So recently we had the terrible news of Norm MacDonald passing away and yes. the amount of people in India yeah. were more the death of Norm. Yes. I'm one of them, by the way. I'm a huge fan of Norm MacDonald. I think one of the greatest comics and, and most people don't realize it. He was not a left-wing comic. He was a conservative. Norm was a conservative and Norm was one of the best comics ever. You know, like you, you listen to George Carlin on one side and then you listen to Norm and, and so many Indians loved him and you would never know his politics if you'd listen to his jokes. Yeah. But then if you listen to his interviews, then you'd know his politics. And, and that was the beauty of the guy. And uh, you're right. And media is changing things. And you know, we're learning about each other's cultures and and I'm sure people in America are learning about India and other things about India and Indians are adopting American values. And and I really don't think that's a big deal. I think that's how the way the world should be. You know, the world at the end of the day, because of the Internet is going to change. So I guess we'll wrap over here, Suhag. So so before uh, before we conclude things, first of all, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll I'll let you have uh, the the last word. So any any passing comments before we wrap things up? Um, I mean, really, just a big thank you um, to all the people who had their voices heard. I know this was a first for a lot of people to. I mean, initially it was just a matter of putting your name into a form and having it sent. But I have received so many emails, I can't keep up with them, of people who are going and taking the extra step of drafting their own letters as alumni and engaging um, their universities um, and, and ensuring that their universities are aware of the type of hateful event, uh, political event that these universities' names were associated to. Um, I want to thank folks like you, Kushal, who have been highlighting these issues and also having very thoughtful conversations on a variety of issues and being open to difference. Um, I think that if uh, the institutions that we're supposed to trust, like, uh, like our government and our educational institutions, are not able to model how to constructively engage with difference, then we should. And, and I think that platforms like yours are powerful places where you can bring people who you agree with, people you don't agree with, bring them all together for one big party. Um, but I think it's important. And what you do that's different from, I was invited to some sort of debate and boy, it was just a lot of talking over and screaming. Like that's not the way um, that you're going to change minds or change hearts. So I really do appreciate your format of, you know, respectfully disagreeing where we do. And I know we have our disagreements, um, but also engaging in conversation so that we can, you know, evolve our thinking. Either we get more ingrained in a particular idea, which is fine, uh, maybe not ingrained, but maybe strengthened. And maybe we change our minds, but but that's what it's all about. So thank you, Gushal. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to add on that, the aim of this podcast, I've always said this, was not to make people agree with my worldview. The aim of this podcast was to expose people to different worldviews and sometimes even in a way where I criticize them. Uh, I 
that like suhag said suhag and i don't agree on everything in fact uh, we have so many disagreements on our offline conversations but the point is that if somebody and i'm very crystal clear in my brain and i remember i was very angry one day on the sham sharma show people were like tu aaj ke gusse mein well if somebody says my very existence is a problem that is me being a hindu i don't care how many disagreements i might have with that individual person yeah. on the on on the outlook of maybe caste jati varna casteism whatever i'm with them because to me if you question my existence my right to be a hindu you're my enemy i say this with no shame at all you that person who thinks hinduism needs to be dismantled and destroyed are my eternal enemy and i will fight you tooth and nail and i'm with haf i'm with every single organization when it comes to that as far as my individual world views are concerned i never impose them on anyone i just share my thoughts and i move forward and hinduism and its beauty was that there were different schools and they all lived together mm-hmm. so while i might want the annihilation of jati varna i will never enforce my view on somebody else who might see some value in having some loose sort of a jati identity i don't care yeah i will always want that person to live with me in a society and we can all live together where you know sometimes you know guy like abhinav said i think it's impractical jati varna annihilation and i am the one who's like no annihilate annihilate and you know abhinav should be the first one to be saying that but he doesn't and that's okay and that's how the world is but the most important point is if somebody says they want to dismantle hindutva and hinduism and by the way i'm not even an official member of rss or the hindu mahasabha not even attended a single shakha ever but i want to say this again today before we wrap this podcast up again this is this is for me not for sure i am hindutva you think that's a problem you can go f yourselves i am hindutva if you have a problem with that too bad and i own my hindutva if that creates a problem for you too bad we land there guys once again it's easy to talk but you should support so i have left the link of the hindu american foundation in the description of this video and also if you're going to be listening to this on the audio podcast go and support the hindu american foundation put your goddamn money where your mouth is i always will say this and the same logic applies to me so if you want to support haf you can go and donate there you want to support me you can support it on youtube on patreon or buying the merchandise or through upi i'll see you guys on friday where we will be talking about our favorite hero aurangzeb with an academic until then take care goodbye see you next time